I wanted to start by showing that video because it struck me that it was probably seven years ago, seven or eight years ago, that pastors started to talk about what we're actually experiencing now. I know I certainly have been over the years, but as I listened to that particular pastor share what he was warning the people he was speaking to about, it struck me that, you know, the part about us suffering, but not outwardly suffering for Christ, but being caused to suffer for allegedly things other than Christ. And I think all of us would count it a blessing and a glory to suffer for Christ. But when you're suffering for Christ and the label that's placed on you is that of your suffering because you're a lunatic, a terrorist, a fanatic, it's a little bit harder. So this evening, I really want to focus in on the power of faith as we've been in the book of James. We looked at persevering faith in the beginning of this book, how we persevere in trials and tribulations. Uh, we, then we started to look at how faith is proven through various different ways. We ended that part of the book last week. This evening we begin the last section, and there are three sections in this last section. It's powerful faith. You have persevering faith, proven faith, and now powerful faith. And faith is powerful in suffering. And if you don't think so, you're going to find out, as I think we all realize all too well, we're going to find out how powerful faith is in suffering pretty soon. In fact, I think we're already finding that out quite clearly. In the book of James, in chapter 5, and I realize that that, that video we just watched is a, is, a, is a wake-up call. I realize that that kind of hits you between the eyes. But the hope in recognizing that faith is powerful is that if faith is powerful in suffering, then the more we suffer, the more power will be going out from our lives, in our lives, through our lives, to the world around us. And ultimately, brothers and sisters, that's what we desire as Christians. Now, having said that, we pick it up where we left off in James chapter 5, verse 7. And we're going to look at three lessons within this lesson of being faith being powerful in suffering. The first is this, that God wants us to respond in faith when we are suffering. God wants us to respond in faith when we are suffering. Not if we suffer, but when we are suffering, God wants us to respond in faith. And that takes a preparation of the heart. Look what it says here in chapter 5, verse 7. Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because... The Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. That paragraph is filled with a warning, but it's also filled with a great hope. The Lord is near. Can I hear an amen? That's what suffering in our world for being a Christian at this time in our lives really indicates that the Lord truly is near. And God wants us to respond in faith when we're suffering. Now, we're called to exercise what's called here patience. Patience in our lives as we wait for the Lord's imminent return. Now, I want to stress this. When you go to, let's say, a restaurant, and while well, this doesn't happen all that much anymore, you're waiting for a table. 
and you're hungry, or you're at the supermarket and you're on the line and you're waiting because you just want to get out of there, or you're stuck in traffic and you're just waiting for the light to change or the accident to be cleared, you're thinking, oh God, give me patience. But you notice once that accident is cleared, once the light turns green, once you're seated at your table, or once you actually get rung up at the cashier and you're out of the building, you don't need patience anymore. See, patience serves a purpose to a point, and after that point, it's unnecessary. And I think the point that's being made clearly is, be patient then, brothers, until, can you say until? Until. I'm glad, because could you imagine having to be patient for eternity? See, to me, that sounds more like hell than it does heaven. Patient until, it says, the Lord's coming. So the whole point of what James is trying to communicate here is, yeah, yeah, we need to be patient, but it's until the Lord's coming. It's not as if we're called to be patient forever and ever and ever. You can be patient knowing this will pass. And, And that's a great encouragement. As we wait and as we exercise patience in our lives, waiting for the Lord's imminent return, we need only be patient until Christ's return not afterward in eternity. I'm looking forward to not struggling with patience in eternity. There's not going to be anything you need to wait for. I mean, it'll all be in our existence and experience forever and ever and ever. There's no waiting for anything. And that in and of itself is a good way to describe heaven. So this requires us to persevere when suffering without losing heart, It requires us to endure the misfortunes and the troubles that come our way. And it requires us to bear the offenses and the injuries of others. And it requires us to be mild and slow in avenging ourselves. It also requires us to be long-suffering, that is, slow to anger, slow to punish others. And that's what it means when we say patience. You look up the meaning of that word, all of those things are encapsulated in that one word, Patience. It's a powerful word in Greek. We must follow the example of the farmer. Now, I don't know about you. I have never been a farmer, although I have spent summers on a farm. I've never been a farmer, but I have harvested crops alongside those that farm. A little different than gardening. Farming is involved, but it's not something you do so you can have fresh radishes on your salad for a couple of weeks. It's something you do to survive, okay? And today, farmers, they not only feed themselves, but they feed others as well. But farming is a very, very important uh, occupation. It is a very, very important calling. Without farmers, we would be in trouble. We may not need the gym as much, but we would be in trouble because we wouldn't be healthy. You see, we must follow the example of the farmer, and that's what's written here He says, see how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. So the example is the farmer who waits for the crops and he's taking taking that example and likening it to us, all of us, not farmers, but us as Christians waiting for the Lord's return. You see, the farmer patiently waits on God. And that's a wonderful example to follow. He plants his seed and then he waits. He waits expectantly for it to grow. He is completely dependent upon God to bring the rain. 
He can't control that. You know, some of, so many of us who are in business or work in sales, uh, we do our best to control the environment. That is, if we don't have any prospective customers, we cold call. We, we get out there, we do things to try to make things happen. As a farmer, there's literally nothing you can do. Unless you believe in a rain dance, there's nothing you can do that's going to make that happen. You have to literally plant your seed and wait and be patient and hope and trust in the Lord. The early rains, which are referred to there as the autumn rains, which came in October and November in ancient Israel, they were necessary for the seed to germinate. And I don't know if you've ever planted grass seed, but this is true. They say you put the seed down in the fall, it at some point starts to germinate, and then by the spring it, it sort of has a jump start. That's the idea. Well, the same is true for crops, certain types of crops. The early rains were necessary in October and November, for the seed to germinate. But then the later rains, or the latter rains, in April and May, the spring rains, they were necessary for the grain to mature. You needed both until a few decades ago in Israel, actually the earlier part of the last century, there were problems in Israel for those that were living there because I can't remember if it was the spring or the autumn rains. They were only getting one of them. Think maybe they were only getting the spring rains, they weren't getting the autumn rains, or maybe vice versa. But the latter rains were not happening, or the, or the former rains, they weren't happening, and the, the crops were not growing to the extent that they could or should. What's amazing is God had prophesied to his prophets that he would restore the early and late rains, or the spring and autumn rains, when his people came back into the land. In 1948, May 14th of 1948, the Jews found themselves back in the land. But they had already been back in the land. They just were now established as a nation. When the Jews actually started to come back in the land, even before that, God restored those rains. And now, even today, Israel is a producer of vegetables and fruit like few other nations on earth. Years and years and years ago, I remember hearing that they were the fourth largest producer of fruit and vegetables. I don't know if that's still true. Anyway, the one thing I can tell you is when the rains were restored, God's people were restored, the prosperity of the land was restored. A farmer relies on these rains in this part of the world, and they're essential. He has to wait for it. He has to be patient. As it says here, he waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. Nothing he can do to make it happen any sooner. Another thing that's really interesting is while being patiently or patiently waiting for the rains, he also only needed to be patient until the crop was harvested. Not afterward in winter. There was no patience required in winter. It was just you already took in your crops. You could just rejoice. And that's likened unto us waiting on the Lord. Because you see, when the Lord returns, nobody's going to say, hey, brother, just be patient. Sister, just hang in there. Endure. Because when the Lord returns, our waiting will be over. Amen? We must continue to wait, for each passing day draws us closer to his return. Indeed, he says it there, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. That's a great encouragement in the face of, uh, you know, that video we watched. It's a great encouragement to know that all of these things bring us closer and closer to the Lord's return, his imminent return. The Lord is near. Amen? Amen? 
I'm excited about that. I really am. As great as democracy might be, I really like the idea of the Lord returning to rule and reign over the whole earth. So you see, waiting patiently includes, includes exercising patience while we are suffering, waiting for that to end. It also includes standing firm in our faith while we are suffering. His return will not only bring an end to our waiting, but to our suffering as well. And so that's what we're looking forward to. Like the farmer, waiting patiently for the crops to come in, for the rains, we wait for the Lord's return. And during that time, we're called to cultivate patience with others as well as we wait for the Lord's return. See, not just patience in our lives as we wait for the Lord, but patience with others. And I think this is where we oftentimes fail. If you are being patient, waiting for the Lord to work in your life, that's one thing. But how do you not be impatient with others while you're waiting for the Lord to work in your life? That's tough, and that's why he goes on to say, don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. See, when, when we grumble against each other, when, when we lose patience with others, we have to consider the fact that, you know, the Lord is coming, and when he does, we will give an account uh, for how we've lived and how we've treated others. That's a great encouragement, isn't it? Quite a, quite a bit of account, accountability in that statement. We must never, or try not to, impatiently sigh or groan. Grumble means to sigh or to groan. And so you might think, well, I don't grumble. But if you've ever been like, "Ah," or, "Ah," then that's a grumble. You don't have to actually say anything. You know, you really don't. Remember mumbly? Or am I dating myself? Jim is shaking his head. I'd say these things, and then Jim and like Estelle and a couple other people know what I'm talking about. Mumbly was this little dog. And he used to just mumble under his breath. I think it was Hanna-Barbera. And he'd be like, I think he was a long sidekick of Dick Dastardly, if I'm not mistaken, mumbly. And, you know, so many times we find ourselves like mumbly, just like, and you may not say it, you may just think it, or you might just, exasperation. We're told not to do that with others, and especially with each other. And that's very hard for everyone. Bless you. That's very hard for all of us, let's be honest. But we try not to. We, we, we really don't want to impatiently sigh or groan with grief, which is what that word means, when dealing with others. And that's what James is saying. Look, the Lord is coming. This is not the time to have to apologize for saying things or doing things you wish you didn't. We must live our lives knowing that we will soon be held accountable. All things are open and naked before him with whom we have to do, the book of Hebrews says in chapter 4. So I I think that's something we should think about, and James thinks so too. Now the second lesson, we've looked at the fact that God wants us to respond in faith when we are suffering. The second is this, God wants us to follow the godly example of others when we are suffering. So if you know anyone who's gone through suffering, you can follow a godly example, but the Bible is filled with a number of different examples. And that's what James brings our attention to in verses 10 through 11. He says, Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we we consider blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance 
and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. That's an encouragement, a great encouragement. In these verses, we're called to consider the patience exercised by the prophets in their suffering. The prophets suffered. Most, if not all, well, not all, but most of the prophets were either put to death or attempts were made on their lives. At a minimum, they were persecuted and chased and treated miserably. And they persevered in their faith despite the great suffering that they experienced. How did they do that? Well, through the power of God, but through their powerful faith in God. They suffered for their willingness to preach the word of God in obedience to God. You see, a prophet is someone that preaches. The word for preach or prophesy is really the same word. Now, we often think of prophets as individuals who predict the future or speak of things that are going to happen. And that's true. Prophets sometimes do that. But a prophet can also just speak the truth of God's word. And by doing that, you could technically be called the prophet. If God is speaking through you, you could technically be called the prophet. Now, in the Old Testament, the prophets were anointed by God, and they held a special office in Israel. They were sort of recognized in that calling. But even in the New Testament, you had prophets, prophets like Agabus and others. And then you had those that simply prophesied. But what we're talking about here is people who stood up and preached the word of God, people who stood up and were willing to pronounce the truth to the world that hated them. That should be, brothers and sisters, every single one of us. Every single one of us should be considered, in that regard, a prophet. But if we do that, I'm warning you, as we've seen already, you will suffer. The world hates prophets of the Lord. The world hates those that stand up and speak the truth. They don't want to hear it. They stop their ears. They stamp their feet. And when they hear the truth, their knee-jerk reaction is to silence the truth. And not just through big tech censorship. To silence the truth by permanently silencing those that preach it. And that's what the prophets had to contend with. They experienced great suffering. They, They suffered for their willingness to do this in obedience to God. But the Lord ultimately commended them for their faith in their suffering. And I want to read in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 35 through 40, what the writer of the book of Hebrews said about the prophets. It says, women received their dead, uh, verse 35, women received their dead raised to life again. Others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned, they were sawed in two, they were put to death by the sword, they went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, Yet none of them received what had been promised. So you think about it. We've we've received what was promised. They did not. They were literally being persecuted for something they believed would happen. We, if we are persecuted, are persecuted for what we know has already taken place. Think about the difference there. It's one thing to be persecuted Because you have faith that something will happen. It's another thing to be persecuted because you believe something has happened. 
That is, Christ came and died on a cross for our sins, rose again on the third day. And here's the part we're waiting on, patiently, him coming again to judge the living and the dead. So, am I trying to scare everybody? And like, you know, am I trying to depress you guys? No. You know, when you, when you go to the gym or you train in some discipline, your trainer, your, your sensei, they're, they're not there to make you feel good about yourself. I found that out very early on in my studies. They're there to challenge you. I'm sure this is true in the military as well. You do a really good job. They're going to pick out the thing you didn't do right because they're trying to get you to move forward and grow. They don't want you sitting on your laurels and feeling good about yourself. That's what not what they get paid for. And I really think, rather than patting ourselves on the back and thinking, whoa, isn't this great? You know, we're ready. We're not ready. We have no idea what God is going to put us through or bring us through. But if we have faith in him and we ask for the strength to get through it, we know that he will carry us through. Amen? But don't think for a minute we're ready because we're not. But God can make us ready by preparing our hearts for all that he's called us to endure. And that's what James wants us to think about. So, the Lord ultimately commended the prophets for their faith. Then he, he mentions Job now. This is really an interesting thought. Because we're called to consider the ultimate blessing received by Job and his suffering. Nobody's going to sit here and say that what Job went through was a good thing. Nobody's going to say after they read the book of Job, Wow, you know, I don't think it was that bad. And yet he received the blessing after he endured the difficulties. And that's why he says, you've heard of Job's perseverance, which is another word for patience, and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. So all that we're going through, all the difficulties that we may endure, probably aren't going to come close to what Job went through anyway. But look at how he ended up. Now, was his end better than his beginning? Well, you know, he lost his children. He, he suffered intensely. That's not the point that his end was better. It's just that he endured and came out on the other side blessed by God. I think about Job a lot. I studied Job uh, on a Wednesday evening many, many years ago now. We went through it in about 11 weeks. And the one thing that came out loud and clear is that nobody enjoys talking about suffering when you don't have a good reason for why someone suffers. It causes all types of questions in your mind is what in the world is God doing? In Job's case, that was part of the problem. He didn't know what God was doing. He persevered in his faith despite the great suffering that he experienced. And though he struggled in his faith, he never abandoned his faith in God. He never did. He questioned his circumstances, but he never questioned God. He just questioned God and his circumstances. But he didn't really question that God existed or that he was there. It's just he couldn't understand how, given his relationship with God and his devotion to God, he was allowed to endure such suffering. And you know, at the end of the book, the answer really isn't anything more than, that's the way it goes, Job. That's the way it goes. He suffered for his willingness to trust the word of God in obedience to God. That's ultimately why Satan brought all of those trials on him, because he was trusting the word of God and obedience to God. And, and Satan wanted to like sift him like wheat. Yeah. Satan wanted to bring type, all types of persecution against him, which is what Satan does. And God allowed it. And God will allow it in the church, and God has allowed it in the church, and God has allowed it throughout the centuries, and the martyrs that we're so familiar with, and even those in the modern day who are suffering, God allows it. 
And you might be thinking, well, why? And we, we try to put a period at the end of the sentence and say, well, God is working and I'm suffering because you may not have that assurance as to why you're suffering. All you have is God and faith in God. Sometimes the suffering, many times, the suffering makes no sense at all. That's when your faith is truly tested, but that's when you have a powerful faith. You see, there will be moments in life when we think that God has forgotten us. If you don't believe that, you haven't lived long enough. He suffered for that willingness to trust in the word of God and his obedience to God and the Lord ultimately showed him compassion and mercy in his suffering. Look what it said. It says the Lord is what? Full of compassion and mercy, even though Job went through this suffering. He is. And though there will be moments in life when we think that God has forgotten us, through faith in God, we shall see that he is compassionate and merciful. He is. He's full of mercy and compassion. But you'll have to go through those experiences, as no lie, to find out just how merciful and compassionate he is. And so the examples of the prophets and Job help us to see that when you're going through difficult times, God is in control. Amen? Amen? Well, it's true that God wants us to respond in faith while we're suffering, and when we're suffering, that he wants us to follow the godly example of others when we're suffering. But finally, it's also true that God does not want us to take oaths or to swear to do anything. And most of the time, when people in the ancient world would do that, they even do this today, they would take oaths and swear to, to do something. Why? To try to avoid suffering. We call it bargaining. If you're familiar with dealing with grief, it's one of the stages of dealing with grief. It's called bargaining. God, if you, then I will. Oh, God, if you let me recover from the sickness, I swear I'll serve you with my life. That's the kind of oath in the context we're talking about. Will you take an oath? Oh, God, if you just keep me from getting fired, I promise you I'll give an extra 5%. You know, these are the kinds of things we do. It's called bargaining. It's how we deal with difficulty and grief and even suffering. It's a, it's a psychological response to something bad happening. If you're familiar with the five stages of grief, you probably know the other ones, but that one oftentimes confuses people, but you see it a lot. And I think that's why in verse 12, in this context, James says, above all my brothers, notice above all, this is interesting, above all, above all, this is more important than the things we've talked about already? Well, yeah, above all my brothers, do not swear. That's not talking about having a potty mouth. It's talking about taking an oath. Do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else, let your yes be yes and your no, no, or you will be condemned. Now, this is very interesting. It's not the only place in the Bible we talk about that. Jesus mentioned this specifically in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5. So, let's break this down, because I think there's a lot we need to think about when we talk about taking oaths. God doesn't want us to do it, to take oaths or to swear to do anything to try and avoid suffering. Because, again, in the context here, that seems to be what he's saying. We're not to make foolish promises that we could never possibly keep. I swear on a stack of Bibles. I swear to God. I think even Frankie Valley wrote a song, right? I mean, we swear up and down. I swear on my mother's grave. I swear on the lives of my children. Have you ever heard some of these things? You probably have. And it's meant to say, well, well I definitely mean it. 
In fact, the necessity of taking an oath implies a tendency toward falsehood. That is, if Sal says to me, I'll see you at five. Sal, you going to be on time? Oh, I swear. I wouldn't even be asking the question, and this isn't true of Sal, I'm just saying, I wouldn't even be asking the question of anyone if I thought they were going to be on time. I'm only asking him to swear or take an oath because I think he might be late, right? That's, that's the idea. When someone takes it, oh, no, I swear, I swear, I'll be on time this time, you know. So you can see that oaths aren't a good thing. They're only used when we doubt a person's sincerity or integrity. You don't need to swear if your word and your reputation's good. If you say, I'll be there, and someone says, you think he'll be late? No, 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 he's always on time. You would only swear if on other occasions you would prove false. So why are you swearing? That's a good point. And by the way, half-hearted vows and empty promises will only end in frustration. I encourage you to read Ecclesiastes 5, verses 4 through 6, which deals with this very topic. Now, Ecclesiastes can be a very depressing book because it's man's wisdom in light of God's workings. And we know what man's wisdom is, right? It's what? Foolishness. God's foolishness. (laughs) You know, it's greater than man's wisdom. Our wisdom is trying to figure out God. And that's what Ecclesiastes, it, it really comes all the way through like the 12 or so chapters and, and, and it comes to the end. Let us hear the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. That's the only verse in that book that really drives home the truth. The other verses, some of what's said is true, some is suspiciously untrue and not that the Bible's untrue, but it's man's perspective on, on life and on truth. And so a lot of the questions are, that are asked and are answered or aren't even answered correctly. For example, all is vanity. Is that really true? Not really. Apart from Christ? Absolutely. So the, you see, it's not enough to just say, well, then all is vanity. You see, the Bible says all is vanity. No, it, there is a lot of truth in there, but it's a lot of times presented from a negative standpoint. So if you read Ecclesiastes, it can be pretty depressing as this man Solomon sort of expresses his own wisdom, and he had the most wisdom of anyone ever lived, but apart from God, apart from the word of God and the obedience to God's word, he comes to the end of the entire book and says, let's hear the conclusion of the matter. Fear God, keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. That's what happens at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes. So I say this because in the book of Ecclesiastes, this issue of taking oaths is is dealt with. And the, the gist of it is this, in those three verses, keep the vows you make or do not make them at all. Keep the vows you make or do not make them at all. Don't say things you don't mean. And don't make excuses for your words either. That's the gist of what is said in Ecclesiastes. But Jesus takes that a step further, dealing with that same topic. And remember James, the half-brother of our Lord, or step-brother of our Lord. He grew up with Jesus. We know that he writes this book, and a lot of his words are very similar to that of Jesus, which makes sense. When you read in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 5, verses 33 through 37, Jesus talked about not taking oaths either. And the gist of that, and I'll let you read that on your own, but The gist of that is Jesus said that anything beyond a simple yes or no will only lead to evil and to sin. So don't do it. Let your yes be yes, your no be no. Don't go any further than that. And I'm glad to say most of the time I don't see too much of this. 
But when someone does go beyond that, it implies maybe you can't trust them, or it implies that they're, they're bargaining with God. Well, I, I want things to go my way. You know what? I'm going to put an extra 10% in the offering this week because I really need this deal to go through. Now, that may sound weird to some of you guys, but being Italian-American, my culture is extremely superstitious. Maybe Spanish cultures as well are very superstitious as well. And maybe your culture is, maybe your culture isn't. But I know this, that my whole life I grew up thinking that if you did this and it was a good thing, then something good would come to you. And if you did something bad, oh, now you jinxed it, right? Now, now forget about it. Now it's going to go south. Oh, I know why this didn't work out. This didn't work out because I cursed at my mom. You know, weird ways of thinking. And so taking oaths and making promises and swearing on different things, it existed in the Jewish culture. It exists in many cultures today. All of it is designed to, to kind of force God's hand somehow or maybe hold ourselves accountable to do something we think we should do. All of it's foolish. And Jesus says so. Jesus says so very clearly. In fact, maybe I'll just read that, what he said. Uh, just cause Who wants to add to the words of Jesus? I mean, they're not going to get any better than his words, right? In uh, Matthew's Gospel in chapter 5, in, in verse 33, uh, we read this. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep the oaths that you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair, white or black. I guess that was before the products they invented in this last century. But simplify, or simply, let your yes be yes, and your no be no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one, and we know who that is. So what Jesus ultimately tells us there. There's absolutely no reason to swear or take an oath. Absolutely no reason. To swear by anything that God has created is foolishness and presumption. And Satan himself is behind the condemnation that comes from breaking vows. See, what the devil wants you to do, he wants you to make a promise to others or to God. But a promise in such a way where if you were to break it, you'd be self-condemned. Because he does his best work in self-condemnation. See, because self-condemnation is the result of someone being proud, and as we all know, pride comes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. So you're setting yourself up for failure, and when you do that, well, the devil just comes along and says, you made that promise, you're going you're gonna to be good this month, you're going to do that, you're gonna do, you don't even keep your promise. God should destroy you. And that is a very dangerous place to be. God resists the proud, and the devil works with pride like some artists work with clay. I mean, let's be honest. So what you want to do is be humble. Yes, no, because anything else you say can and will be used against you by the devil himself. So what you don't want to do is start making all kinds of promises and then leads to self-condemnation, and then the devil, of course, gets his way with your, your heart. And that comes from pride. If you're humble, then you realize, I can't make a promise. How do I know whether I can keep that promise? Humility says, I probably can't. Pride says, I'll definitely be there at, at five. You see, that's the whole idea here. But it's connected to suffering, or at least in trying to avoid it. 
And I believe that's why James mentions it in verse 12. Listen, let's be honest. We're willing to do just about anything to avoid suffering. Anyone? Anyone? I am. You give me a choice. You do this and you don't have to suffer. You do this and you get to suffer. I don't have a problem making that decision. I don't even need to pray. I will do the thing that leads to the least amount of suffering. Right? I mean, if you knew that touching the hot stove would burn you or touching the countertop won't, what are you going to touch? You're not going to touch the stove. You, you learn as a child what you can touch and what you can't because you don't want to suffer. Your whole body's programmed to avoid it. So, we will do just about anything to avoid it, including making bargains with God, making promises. Don't do it. I want to remind you of a few things, just as a way of a recap here. You know, Jesus was willing to suffer if it meant doing the Father's will. We're all too familiar with his words, not my will, but your will be done. James, James was willing to suffer if it meant receiving all of God's eternal blessings. He talked about that in chapter 1 of this book. Hey, Paul, Paul was willing to suffer if it meant knowing Christ and becoming like him. I want to know the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. That's what Paul said in Philippians chapter 3. In fact, he was willing to suffer if it meant helping others to do the same. Peter, well, Peter was willing to suffer if it meant bringing glory to God. So in short, and as we close, I think it's fair to say James wants us to know, and we need to recognize that we must be willing to accept suffering in our lives as an opportunity to experience powerful faith. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, of course we don't desire to suffer. Oh Lord, but rather than make any deals or bargain with you that we might not experience difficulties and suffering, we like Jesus, like James, like Peter, like Paul, like the prophets, even like Job, come to you and recognize that if you call us to suffer, then you'll help us to endure. Lord, in enduring through trials and persevering and having patience in them, may we have a faith that's powerful. A powerful faith that not only carries us through, but those around us. And is a testimony to a world that despises you and hates you. It would cause us to suffer simply because we love you. Lord, we ask that you would work in our hearts and continue to work in this. In Jesus' name, amen.